Good morning, church family. It's, well, I had an answer. Two answers. Uh, welcome to those of you on Zoom. I'm excited because I'm speaking before a packed house. Uh, lockdown allows us to have 10 people, and there's nine people in the sanctuary. So, in a way, it's packed. So, that's exciting. Uh, but I'm glad that you are here uh, joining us via Zoom. Sorry if I just went out of the uh, camera. And, and Zach and Gabby, I want to thank you for the songs you chose. Uh, Zach was kidding t- this morning. Uh, and actually, I guess we emailed earlier this week about uh, a theme for the songs. And I tried to explain what I was going to be speaking about a little bit. And I said, I realize that might be difficult trying to find songs uh, that fit. And I said, if all else fails, sing about Jesus, because that always fits. And uh, they uh, not only sang about Jesus, but you pick songs that uh, are quite fitting to the topic that we're going to be looking at. One thing I learned early uh, in my marriage with Allison is that there are certain things you just don't compromise. Uh, that day that Allison came home with a ketchup bottle that didn't say Heinz on it, I knew that perhaps we needed marriage counseling right off the beginning. And when she brought home macaroni and cheese that didn't say KD or Kraft Dinner on it, uh, I knew that there could be an issue. And uh, likewise, when I explained to Allison that I grew up with a mom that uh, gave us mock ham and macaroni and cheese meat that she bought probably cheap at the deli, uh, and Allison insisted that that's not something we compromise on. We're going to eat real uh, deli meat. There are things that we just don't compromise. But the reality is compromise is a regular, everyday occurrence in life. Uh, For Allison and I, that's why we drink 1% milk. I was brought up on 2%. She tried to get me to drink this white, watery substance that she called skim milk. Uh, Neither was going to win. And so we compromised and we drink 1% milk Uh, in a more serious decision. That's how we ended up living where we live. It was kind of a compromise between what Allison was looking for uh, and I was looking for in a place to live. And there's times that compromise is a really wise decision. Like when you've got people or groups that have two extreme opinions uh, by mutually, uh, by mutual concession, you can come to an agreement. Uh, You can find common ground by compromising between two extreme positions. And the Bible actually promotes this kind of compromise. Uh, It's what holds marriages, families, churches together, and it involves um, setting aside our own personal preference and and perhaps our our self-centered desires for the sake of peace and unity with others. And so I would call that wise compromise. And I wanted to say that right up front because I'm not going to really talk about wise compromise anymore this morning, but there is a kind of compromise that is wise. But as you can imagine, there is also compromise that is unwise. When we move away from values and and moral principles uh, that we once held firm, when we substitute uh, truth for a lie, That's an unwise compromise. And the Bible speaks about unwise compromise as well. And the question I want to begin with this morning is this. What place does unwise or worldly compromise have in the life of a Christian and in the life 
of a church? And I realize in a way it might sound like a kind of a silly question because uh, there's kind of an expected answer and you probably all know what the expected answer is. So maybe I should change the question and ask a more personal question. Why is it that you and I, why is it that local churches find worldly compromise so tempting? Why do we back away from morality principles and and values and and substitute uh, truth with a lie? Why do we find ourselves doing that? Why are we tempted to do that? And and I can think of a number of answers. One, we compromise because we don't want to be a fuddy-duddy. We don't want to be that individual Christian or that church that's a stick in the mud. We may see what society represents as its lifestyle, and perhaps we want a taste of it. That makes compromise tempting. We want the best of both worlds. Or maybe we want to get the applause or the recognition or status or an advancement within the world. And it only happens if we compromise. And that makes compromise tempting. And there's a lot of times that we compromise because we don't want to offend. And the reality is that there are a lot of Christians and there are a lot of local churches who have bought into the belief that you don't lose credibility as a Christian, that you won't lose credibility as a local body of believers by living like the world lives. And yet, on the contrary, when it comes to biblical truth, when it comes to living the kind of life that God has called us to live, there is no room for worldly compromise. Uh, Chuck Swindle, in his commentary on uh, Revelation, writes this, Like erosion, worldly compromise, unwise compromise, can slowly, silently, and subtly eat away at the truth. It begins as we turn a deaf ear to the corruption and falsehood around us. Eventually, we not only put up with these sins, we also become used to seeing them all around us. Even worse, we come to expect and accept them. From there, it isn't long before we embrace them. Bottom line. Biblical truth and biblical morality cannot exist in a culture of compromise. And this is the message that Jesus had for the church at Pergamum. And I believe 2,000 years later, it's the message that Jesus has for the church today. Let's read that letter together. Uh, Turn, if you've got your Bible or your your Bible app, uh, to Revelation uh, chapter 2 and uh, look at verse 12 with me. Revelation 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. 
Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin as they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it. I, so sorry, known only to the one who receives it. And this is the letter from Jesus to the church in Pergamum. And we're continuing this morning in our series on these, these letters to these seven different real churches, real struggles, real challenges, real needs. And these are letters that are written by Jesus to these seven churches. Jesus, the author. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we see Jesus is the all-sufficient one, the all-powerful one, the all-knowing one. It's in him that we find the answers to the problems and the concerns of the church and of our individual lives. And so it is Jesus who writes to the church at Pergamum. And so we've been to Ephesus. Last week we were in, where were we, Josh Smyrna? Uh, And uh, this week we're in Pergamum. And how can I get you to have a sense of what it was like to be a Christian uh, in Pergamum? I think this is a good way. I want you to imagine a young Christian growing up in a small town far away from the big cities, brought up in a pretty strict upbringing, fairly sheltered, and then they make the big move and they come to the University of Trent or they go to the University of Toronto. Uh, I, with my experience working with um, the Christian fellowship groups at the Scarborough campus and the Arendelle campus of the University of Toronto many years ago, as well as our experience here at Auburn working with the Christian fellowship groups at Trent, have come to meet a number of students who found themselves in that very situation. Brought up as a Christian, fairly strict home, small town, pretty sheltered existence, and they come to Toronto, where they come, to Peterborough, and it's a culture shock. Everything goes. They walk the halls and the, and the, the, the residences uh, at Trent, and they hear of all the religions and all the clubs and the bars and the parties, and, and all, the, all to do with sex is, is okay, and there's drugs, and there's heavy consumption of alcohol, and on and on and on. And it's a culture shock. And I think you can imagine what that would be like. Maybe that was your experience. Maybe that was your child's experience. But I want you to stretch your imagination a little further. That the leadership at Trent University, let's say, wonders how can we unite such a diverse student body? coming from all walks of life, some believing this, some believing that, some with this lifestyle, this, others with this lifestyle. How can we unite them? And, and the leadership at Trent comes up with this idea. We are going to invoke president worship. All the students have to worship the president of the university. 
And if they don't, there will be consequences. They'll lose their student card, can't use the library, they won't be able to eat in the cafeteria, uh, their grades will automatically be lowered, uh, they won't be able to participate in school functions. So can you imagine what that would be like for that Christian student being thrown into this idea of president worship? And if you can understand or appreciate that at all, then welcome to Pergamum. Pergamum politically was the Roman capital of Asia. Academically, it housed a huge library. And as far as religion was concerned, you could believe what you want, but ultimately you had to worship the emperor. And Pergamum was the place that the first temple to emperor worship uh, was erected. And you either worshipped ultimately the emperor or you paid the consequences, which could be loss of citizenship. It could even be death. Pergamum, as we saw from verse 13, was not a very Christ-honoring city. Jesus described it as the place where Satan has his throne. Pergamum was a place where Satan was very busy, where he had great influence. Pergamum was kind of like a place that we may recognize today. Because in many ways, it sounds a lot like Peterborough or Toronto or other cities in Ontario where Satan is busy at work, where Satan has great influence, where people's sin affects everybody where the lines between good and evil are very blurred, where, where sin is, is protected by political correctness, where sexual sin is called an alternative lifestyle. And in the midst of Pergamum, we find this church of Pergamum that had a foothold in the town. And I believe 2,000 years later, in a place where Satan has great influence, churches like Auburn Bible Chapel are called to be a church, called to be a light in a dark world in the midst of Satan's activity. And so I believe that the message that Jesus has for the church at Pergamum is very relevant and applies greatly to churches like Auburn 2,000 years later. And as you can imagine, being a Christian in Pergamum, being a church in Pergamum was not an easy thing. Uh, It was difficult. And and in our letter, Jesus commends the, the, the church of Pergamum for the fact that they were faithful to Jesus faithful to his message. And in fact, they even stood firm in the midst of opposition. And even the atrocities that had taken place uh, uh, in their history. And Jesus talks about uh, this person, Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Right in the middle of Satan's headquarters stands this church, the church church of Pergamum. And they've remained faithful to Jesus. They've remained faithful to his message. Uh, 
They've even had someone pulled from their congregation and put to death because of their role and their part in the kingdom and sharing the message and the truth of Jesus. I wonder what would happen to us if if someone walked in here and, and dragged one of us out and put us to death because of our faith. What would we do? Would it make us stronger, or, or, or would we flee? And yet the church of Pergam, per, Pergamum stood strong. But, in the NIV it says, nevertheless. And as you read these letters, you almost come to expect that there's going to be a but. A nevertheless. Despite what Jesus commends them for, there's a problem at the church of Pergamum. A big problem. And the problem was this. They had false teachers in their presence and they failed to do anything about it. Instead, they, they chose a, a, a route of compromise for the sake of peace and unity. They compromised some, some pretty key principles of morality and truth to offer these false teachers and their false teachings a safe haven. And as we read in the letter, we come across two names, Balaam and the Balaamites, and as well the Nicolaitans. And we may have no clue who they are and what they represent. We're given a little detail here. Two weeks ago when we looked at the letter to the church of Ephesus, we learned a little bit more about the Nicolaitans. But let me really quickly summarize what these two groups, these two false teachings represented. First of all, you've got the Balaamites. And you have to go back, I think it's numbers. You have to go all the way back to, to start tracing the roots of this false teaching. But, but ultimately what they promoted was idolatry, and sexual immorality that was fueled by lust, greed, and selfishness. And then you had the Nicolaitans, and we looked at them a couple of weeks ago, and, and what they taught was that because you have been forgiven by Christ, because you have freedom in Christ, you're free to sin however you may like. And so, as you could imagine, that was a pretty appealing message, that you're Forgiven, but you're also free. You have a license to all these sins that to the the human nature seem so appealing. And so that's what was going on in the church of Pergamum. And I think we've got to be fair to the church. Because how can we hold it against the church who hopefully had a door that was open wide enough to be encouraging people to come in how can we blame them that someone has come into their midst that, that uh, is holding on to some wonky theology? Because that happens at any church. Within any church, someone can come in who holds theology uh, that is false, that isn't true. So what was the problem that Jesus finger, uh, pointed his finger to? Well, I think there's two problems. One, I'm just going to really quickly highlight because Josh is going to talk a lot more about this next week. The first problem was that there were people within the church who were buying in to the false teaching. They were buying into the idea that they could call themselves a Christian and yet live like the world. 
They could do what they want, watch what they want, participate in what they want, consume what they wanted to, and still call themselves a Christian. But I think the primary problem that Jesus points his finger at within the church of Pergamum is this. The faithful believers in the church failed to take any action against the false teachers and their teachings. As I said, they they chose a route of compromise. They, They loved the sinner but accepted the sin. They compromised morality and truth for the sake of peace and unity within the church. In a way, they were schizophrenic. On the one hand, Jesus is commending them for their faithfulness, their faithfulness uh, to his name, their, their courage in standing firm against opposition, and yet now Jesus is rebuking them because they tolerate false teaching. They've, they've allowed to go undealt with people who promote and practice these false teachings. I mean, I could just imagine what the pamphlet would look like that the church of Pergamum would put out and and send to all the homes around their church in the neighborhood. It would say something like this, we invite you and want you to come visit us. We as a church preach the doctrines of the faith that were handed down to us by the apostles. You may not agree, but that's okay. We'll consider you, consider you part of our fellowship. You may choose to still worship your idols. We'll still count you amongst our numbers. You may choose to still f- frequent temple prostitutes and let your wild out on the weekends. Now, we may frown at you a little bit, but we'll still consider you members of our congregation. What a mixed message. And I got to be fair to the church at Pergamum. Someone who's been in, as someone who's been in, in leadership for, for quite some time in a number of different churches, I understand the appeal of being a church that is known for having wide open doors. To be known as a church that's loving and, and shows mercy and, and reaches out and, and, and is um, a place where people who are lost and searching can feel safe. But there's a point where things go off the rails when we press that too far. And, and, and listen to me and, and understand what I'm trying to say here. There's a problem when our ministry flows into and makes murky our membership requirements. When our ministry um, makes it difficult to understand what's involved in becoming a part of the body. You see, when we press it too far, the church can end up being a mixture of truth and error, uh, purity and and impurity, and, and evil spreads so far and so deep that, was, that what was once seen as sinful is not seen as sinful anymore. And the church becomes compromised. 
And what place does this kind of compromise have in the life of a church and in the life of an individual believer? It has no place. Is it a serious situation when this kind of worldly, unwise compromise enters the church? Jesus answers with a resounding yes. Jesus labels this kind of compromise as sin, and he says, repent, or I'll deal with the problem myself. Jesus, who spoke the world into existence, says, I will come judge with the sword of my mouth, with my words. Repent. Change the direction and the attitude of your heart and of your mind. It's a call for for decisive and immediate action. And what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum, and what he's saying to you and I, and what he's saying to the local bodies of believers in the world in 2021 is this. Stop lingering in the way of Satan. Repent. When you find yourself as a body or as an individual backing away from those principles and values and biblical truths that you once held firm, all in the order to bring peace and unity to a group of people who may disagree on very key things. Repent when you find yourself tolerating that which you know is untrue. Repent when you find the ways of the world appealing. Repent when you partake of the way of the world. It's a very serious and humbling message that Jesus has for the church. He will not tolerate worldly compromise. And he calls us to repent. And I'm quite happy that the letter doesn't end here because these are very humbling words from Jesus to the church and to us. I'm very happy that this letter ends with a much-needed word of hope for the church. And the letter ends with three, uh, three promises, a series of wonderful promises that Jesus has for those who are faithful, for those uh, who have ears and are willing to hear what the Spirit says to those um, who are victorious and overcome. And Jesus says, I will give some of the hidden manna. And that hidden manna refers to personal communion with Jesus. It reflects the fact that what the world has to offer us pales in comparison to what Jesus, the living bread, the living water, has to offer those who will partake of him. For those who will partake of Jesus, the living water and the living bread, will never thirst and will never hunger again. The second promise is that uh, to that person, I will give that person a white stone. And the white stone here speaks of acquittal, of, of purity. And then it says that stone will have a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. What does it mean? Not sure anyone can really know because no one's received that white stone this side of heaven because it awaits us in heaven. But I came across uh, one of my favorite preachers, and and he gave an illustration to explain what he believes the new name is. And and he talked about how in marriage, many couples have pet names for each other. 
Names that they would never share outside the privacy of their home. Names that reflect the intimacy and, and, and love and the bond, the special relationship that the husband has with the wife. He says that's kind of what this new name on this white stone reflects. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered, what's it going to be like when we get to heaven? Like we're going to be surrounded by millions of believers. Will we ever get close to Jesus? Like, will he be able to even see us? Will, will, will he recognize us in a crowd? And yet the assurance of Jesus here is that not only will he know us, not only will he seek us out, but he will refer to us by a name that only he and us will know. That is a great promise and gives us great hope. You know, at the outset of this series, I, I asked the question, why, look at these letters, why now in the middle of a pandemic when we can't even meet as a church? Why when Auburn is in the middle of looking for a new lead pastor, we've, we've, we've gone through the history in the last number of years that we have why do we look at these letters now? And I, and I suggested that this is the best time for us to be looking at these letters, to see what Jesus would have to say to us. And it's not just a message for Auburn Bible Chapel in 2021. I believe it's a message for all local bodies of believers. You know, I don't know of a church, an evangelical church, that doesn't want to be a light in a dark world. I don't know of any evangelical church that wouldn't want to be considered an oasis of hope and healing in a world that's hurt and broken. But we as a local body of believers are no help to sinners when we stop seeing sin as sinful. Jesus came to give his life to save sinners. And when we, the church stops believing in sin, when the church embraces sin, when the, the church winks at or minimizes or turns a blind eye to sin, we have nothing to offer this world. And we become no different than any other social club other than this. Those social clubs aren't being hypocrites. We would be. This is the message to the church at Pergamum. And this is the message for us today. May God grant us the strength to stand firm for the truth of his word and the truth of the good news of the fullness of his gospel. May God give us the wisdom to take a stand against false teachers and false teachings. And may God give us the courage to stand firm until the end. Amen.